This is exactly right. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deep deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Welcome to another episode of your favorite podcast, That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kara Clank. <laughs> and I'm Aliza Traeger. <laughs> and we're pumped here. We do SVU. And then we talk true crime. And, you know, up top, we catch up a little bit and we pretend we don't see each other almost every day. <laughs> um, and this will be our third intro in a row talking about Halloween. I'm eating <laughs> Halloween candy right now, baby, at 9 a.m. <laughs> you lucky bitch. You lucky bitch. Um, I really had a not... I, I mean, I went to Rosie's Halloween parade. That was very eventful. Was, she was thrilled. Her teacher goes, did you see her trying to go on into the crowd? I go, she has a friend. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't catch that. That's so cute. She went to go say hi to you and the teacher thought that Rosie was just like greeting the fans. Like she <laughs> thought that Rosie was just like heading to the... Talking to her people. I was having the time of my life. I mean, Rosie as a zebra was great, but I did have a favorite child. And she did win her grades costume contest. And I love the Dunkin' Donuts Munchkin box girl. Yeah. That was, she was the star for me. She was the star. <laughs> the Medusa was nice. The Jack Skellington brought it. But 
I was yeah. really feeling the Munchkins box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really cute. They like parade around. Everybody watches. They do go by grade. It was cute. Well, I remember our first grade. You know what was so interesting seeing this Halloween in LA? It was in the 80s. And like yeah. for my whole childhood, it was like, fuck, like what, what, my coat. I don't want it to cover my costume. Yeah. And then it was like how to be warm in the costume. And these kids were sweating, taking Sweat. their hoods off. <laughs> like children were struggling and it's such a different experience. Totally. Totally. Mom, I don't want to wear a coat. It's going to ruin the whole look. And like <laughs> here, it's like Rosie had kids in her class. I go, did they not dress up? She goes, no, he's Sonic. He just got too hot. Like, <laughs> you know, like people just, it's it was boiling. And I like was out in the sun for like five hours because I was the chair of the Harvest Festival <laughs> as an insane person. And then I went straight to trick-or-treating and I went to a street that was so wild. It's like a classic LA street that people love to go to. And it was too crowded. I'll never go there again. Could barely walk on the sidewalks. The kids had to like, you know, wait in line to get into certain houses because the stairwells were like flooded with children. I just, I'm not doing that shit again. It, I'm going to go my fun. neighborhood. My neighborhood has good stuff and I shouldn't have gone to another neighborhood. Yeah, you just can't say no. You have an ultimate FOMO and you needed to go to the main street. And now you learned. I learned. I learned and I'll never go back again. But she got to see a bunch of her friends and, you know, it was cute. We ran into people we knew. It was they cute, but it was like... the hood. I, I don't know. I yeah. grew up as... You trick-or-treat where you live. Like, even yeah. the planned and the curfews and we're actually doing it on a Sunday. Like, that that's future shit. That's, like, a not Sunday. a part of my life. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I feel like there are people that are like, oh, we did... Our neighborhood does something on the weekend. Or, like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. I mean, not to insult anyone. Even thinking about kids, like, trick-or-treating in an apartment building is so funny to me. <laughs> like, in New York. Yeah. <laughs> I asked one girl in the class, I asked her mom, because I love her mom. I always talk to her. And I was like... Are you, where are you guys going trick-or-treating? Because they live around the corner from us. She goes, I'm not taking her trick-or-treating. I was like, what? She was like, she hasn't asked about it. I'm not taking her. I was like, okay. That's amazing. I don't know why she hasn't asked about, because this woman has like two older children. Like I think maybe even like 20s or like late, late teens. And then this, and then this four-year-old. So I think she's kind of like, I'm done. If she asks me, I'll take her. But if she doesn't mention it, I'm not doing it. No, I actually, um, so I went to a show called Witches, and that was really fun. I was devastated to miss. But then I got home, and I watched Elvira, and it Ooh. was fun. It, you really can tell why RuPaul loves it. You really can, watching it. It's, it's camp. Like, it's, he's all I think about. I'm like, oh my God, RuPaul probably cackled at this. Yeah. Oh, she loved this, you know? But Elvira, mistress of the dark. Um, really ahead of its time. I think I've actually talked about the Elvira movie on this podcast before. I, yeah, I know I have. You have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I totally remember being like, sh it's ahead of its time because she just keeps getting assaulted and harassed from the moment the movie starts till the end. Like, <laughs> most of the movie is her shutting down dudes that are trying to rape her and then getting, like, she shows up to a town and people in pitchforks are like, you're a whore. And it's like, all of your boyfriends are trying to assault her. But yeah, so it's really ahead it's of its so time. It's so funny because it's like, I have just this like general remembrance of like youth being like, oh, Elvira, she has her tits out. She's a slut. Oh, Dolly Parton, she has her tits out. She's a slut. Monica Lewinsky, like she fucked the president. She's a slut. Like that's like what was going on in my 
like household, I think, because of my Republican dad. And like when I, now that I look back at all that stuff, I'm like, oh yeah, these were like icons <laughs> and all. And I had completely the wrong idea, like revisionist history. Yeah, as a teen, like, I just know so many people that are so cool now that were teen Republicans. Yeah. Like, <laughs> or, or I remember I even think in I fourth was. grade, <laughs> sitting next to my friend, who I still keep in touch with, but in fourth grade, we our, our desks were across from each other. And I remember her being like, I don't know. Bill Clinton's just so ugly. I'm a Bob Dole girl. And I was like, Bob Dole's pretty ugly too. Like, I remember this conversation like it was yesterday. <laughs> I'm a Bob Dole girl is such a wild thing to hear from a fourth grader. She was just like, all because it's our parent. It's like, you don't even know how you're being brainwashed. Like there are comedians who are obviously like so liberal ahead of everything. And they were teen Republicans. And I know it. One of my best friends was when she got to college, wrote an article about like George Bush. It's like, (sighs) and that's why the Republicans hate college. Cause then you learn. Yeah, and they they would prefer you not do that because yeah, and, they, and urban cities because that's where you meet like people with different opinions and backgrounds and yeah, it's just so funny how they don't get that it's a self own for them to be like, oh, college that's where you turn liberal and gay and it's like wait what like <laughs> you mean the place to learn makes them against you like isn't that a little inclination to. Maybe you're dumb. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to alienate anybody. JK. We I don't think we have Republican listeners. No, they came. They left a bad review. They left. You yeah. know, we had them, but they were gone. They're gone now, I think. Message um, us if you are a Republican who is just okay putting up with this. <laughs> Bashing. <laughs> oh, well, um, all of the Catholic apologists that message us, I have a new a new puzzle piece to add to the Catholic puzzle of mistrust. And there's name dropping as well. So really, this is bait for anyone that's annoyed All by All of us. our one-star people. If you're still hate listening, get ready. <laughs> <laughs> so I got an email from my agent and it just said, hey, Jane Fonda and Julia Louis-Dreyfus are hosting an event about uh, to have a healthy California. And I'm known to care about the environment. JK. I mean, I'm not against it, but I don't, you know, I'm not on the front (laughs) lines of environmentalism by any means, but I am a star fucker. So I did go. (laughs) I went to the environment meeting. I thought it was going to be in a theater. I thought I was just going to sit with a friend and watch from a distance. It was in a boardroom. I sat two feet away from fucking Elaine Bennis. Like, it was wild. And you could tell she didn't really want to be there, but Jane Fonda roped her into it. She was like, you know, I I told Jane I'd get involved if she needed. And so here I am. <laughs> but like, <laughs> I'm being more direct. It was more like lighthearted. But Jane but I Fonda- love that it's like, it's like a conference room. It's like a breakout in the Santa Fe room. Like they're just like so few people. And they're like, all right, let's get down to brass tacks. The gang's all here. <laughs> Lisa, ideas. <laughs> They really did. We're like, okay, any questions? And then, but this happens, this happened when we went to see Fran Lebowitz at the theater at the Ace, like where people with their questions want to seem smarter than Fran Lebowitz. They want to prove something. They just want to be heard and seen. And that happened even in a, not even, of course, in a room of celebrities. You know, it was star-studded. Connie Britton's there. We have, there were some SVU alums. So we had a Sophia Bush and a Rosanna Arquette there. So um, that was quite thrilling, but whatever. So all these celebs are there. And then people that are affected, and basically why the celebs were meeting 
was next year. So basically, there are just oil rigs across the street from schools and children. And it's so Aaron Brockovich. These kids are getting bloody lungs, coughs, cancers, like they can't breathe, awful issues. And a law was passed that the oil rigs would have to, um, you know, change their shit up, become better for the environment and for kids' safety. And this is what happened last year. What is it called? Is it a referendum? The big oil is coming back. And it's kind of what they did with the Uber stuff. Um, and But if the, if big oil wins, we can never bring this up into the laws again. And basically, they've made all the oil rigs and oil places like safer in white neighborhoods. This is environmental racism. And basically, they have tons of money. And so the celebs need to be vocal. And you guys. So it's like California versus big oil. It's happening in October 2024. And it's important. And then we found out. So one of the good questions was, so who owns the land these oil rigs are on? And we learned that the oil rigs, some of them are owned by the archdiocese. Like that the Catholic Church are some of the biggest landowners ever. And they own all of these things that are murdering children with oil poisons. Love thy neighbor. So fuck. And this is kind of like the NFL. Like, the, like there's better helmets, but they, they're using worse helmets because of a fun deal instead of protecting their players. And this is the same thing. Like, you can make this safer. You just don't yeah. want to. And they call these communities that live around, they call them sacrifice zones. They, this is like, I don't know. It sucks that Aaron Brockovich is the only thing I can think of. I'm so uneducated. But listen, Jane Fonda opened my eyes to this oil rig situation. And we'll see what happens. October 2024. But if you see see me on the front lines. (laughs) She's going to be linking arms with Jane Fonda and fucking Sophia Bush. Say who all was there. I don't, is it rude? Because we weren't even allowed to take photos. They like they were like, no cameras allowed. And then there was like art in the lobby that I liked. And before I could take a picture of it, someone like ran up to me and was like, no photos. Oh, I think it's like, I, I think, yeah, a photo is like a different, like I think you just mentioned who's also helping against oil. You know, I think it's like a compliment to mention who was there. I would love that. And me and my friend noticed not very many men showed up. Oh, weird, 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 weird. Ed Begley Jr. was there. So that was exciting. Love this him. guy, he has the most annoying name and he need I can't I mean he's working so it's fine. The guy from American Housewife. Like what the fuck? His name is so hard. And I'm a fan of his. I mean, I've been watching Oh, Deirdre Bader? That's a crazy name. Yeah, I guess. I don't know what he's Yeah, Deirdre Bader. How, how do you know? I feel like I wa- I've been watching him for decades and every time I'm like, who is what is that man's name? <laughs> It does not roll off the tongue. He is truly one of those people that I don't think he'll ever be like a a super huge star, like obviously a household name since his name's a little hard. But (laughs) like when his memoriam runs at the Oscars in 50 years or whenever, I will cry because he will be like one of those actors that I'm like, he's in everything. Like he's in everything, that guy. Yeah, so 236 credits because I obviously went to look because I keep having to look for his 236, name. he's not even that old. That's huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he does tons of voices. And um, yeah, he's in office space. That's where it hit me. But he was just in The Blackening. Oh, he was in 16 episodes of Better Things. So Pamela Adlon yeah. was there. He takes the daughter to go get her abortion and better things. 
Oh my God, I don't even know if I remember that. I should rewatch oh, better it's things. It's so great. He like takes her, they drink a cold Coke in the car afterwards because she's like, nothing's better than a cold Coke in a bottle. It's a great scene. Oh my God, yeah. Pamela was there in a hat, glasses, the whole thing. Lily Tomlin was there. Michaela Watkins, Judy Greer, Rosario Dawson. I mean, it was in a tiny conference room. And then I was like, I, and then there was people that like work within the environment and politics and government and like important. And then I do wonder how many like people like me were there where I was like, huh? <laughs> I was like, I'll go look at Jane Fonda and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Sure. <laughs> Let's see. But now oh I am, God. I'm upset. I mean, there's like a young woman there that truly was had to be in witness protection program because she went against big oil. It's really, um, and like the Uber thing passed last year. Like their commercials are deceitful. There's lies and they have hundreds of millions of dollars they can spend. Yeah. Like no one can go against them and they make it so confusing where regular people are being tricked because of because yeah. they're trying to trick you and the other side doesn't have money. I mean, I truly sound like a 19-year-old who just took her first sociology class and I apologize. I'm just like, have you <laughs> have you heard of Big Oil? They have money? Listen, another industry that needs to not be stopped is our industry, the industry of us touring and being on the road. I just want to take a second to move away from Big Oil and talk about how <laughs> We are going to be in New York City on December 16th. I believe there's like a handful of tickets left to the 6 o'clock show. We've added a 9 o'clock show, guys. Get out and get those ticks. It's the holiday season. We want to spend time with you. It's at City Winery, a beautiful venue. So it's going to be a 6 o'clock show, a 9 o'clock show. You know, we meet people afterwards. We do, uh, we sell merch that's tour specific. So come see us. Then the next night we'll be in Philly. Uh, on the 17th. We'll also be in Sacramento on the 13th. Sacramento. When we came last year, you guys made us feel like Beatles. You were the loudest crowd that cheered when we came out. You were the best. Please come back. We're doing a different episode. And then that'll be it for 2023. And then we'll see you on... on uh, well, you'll see Lisa to celebrate the insurrection on January 6th at the, at the Wet City Comedy Festival. And then our podcast will be on January 7th and that's in Seattle. So if you live in the Pacific Northwest, baby, get your little booty to Seattle and come see us on the 7th. And um, that's that on that. And then this is uh, actually November 18th. So just this weekend, I'll be in San Diego. So come on down. That'll be my last date of the year. So and San Diego. I, yeah. Listen, I also was going to say I watched the Jewel documentary about Jewel Pods, not Jewel the singer. I was telling somebody about this the other day and I go, oh, there's like a Jewel documentary. My friend goes, I'd watch that. And I go, it's about the vape. And she goes, oh, that's not what I was thinking. Well, the person I was with that I made that little error was like, oh, that sucks for Jewel the singer. I go, well, no, because that's who you thought of. So she's still the prominent in person mind. in your mind. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But Jewel and Pax are owned by the same people. I didn't oh, know that. I didn't know that. Plume. Um, listen, basically Jewel treated their product like a tech product, but it's nicotine. And so they got children addicted to it. And uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh. Yeah. You Oopsies. can't have mango flavor and fun, colorful advertisements if you're in the space of addictive products. But <laughs> they were like, we're the iPhone of, of stuff. And so that was kind of the main gist of that. If you're interested or you liked um, me, you know, my quick little summary. <laughs> Listen, um, let's get this party started. Wait, really wait, quickly, though, speaking more of docs. What? No. 
Speaking of docs, what we never talked about was Lisa talked on this podcast about the Quiz Daddy documentary that she watched on HBO Max. And a couple of our listeners noticed right after that episode aired, that doc is gone. And that's not like weird. They take stuff down. There's not a mention of it. Like, you know, sometimes you'll look it up. It'll The, the link will pop up. You click on it and it's like no longer available at HBO Max. It is gone. There is no mention of it. I went on Twitter. There's like no mentions of it on Twitter. Maybe one mention of it. Like, it's weird. Like, what happened? If you have any inside scoop on what happened to the Quiz Daddy documentary, let us know. <laughs> Well, it was like a propaganda against the CEO. And like, I wonder if he was able to fight back in some way. I don't know. I don't know why they took yeah. it off, but how lucky that I got to see it. Well, I also got something else taken down. Not that I got Quiz Daddy documentary this taken down. This is amazing. But this, I think I did. Okay, so Lisa and I were talking in another forum about uh, fetishes. And we were like, we went, we were Googling the top fetishes and Lisa went to this one on Huffington Post and it was listing all these um, philias, you know, like people that are turned on by bugs and whatever. And one of them was like a philia that was like two attraction. Of two of them. Yeah. Were about one attraction. was like, from uh, like a la like one was like if you're attracted to 13 to 16 year olds you're a thisophilia and if you're attracted to 6 to 10 year olds you're a thisophilia but not pedophilia like they we were had just, just like no real that's names. Pedof yeah <laughs> like one of them is like your fetish it, basically one of them was like your fetish is adolescence and it's like that's not a fetish that's pedophilia that's a crime <laughs> and you can't like and it was just on the list so Lisa like wrote um wrote in you didn't leave a comment you like wrote in a message to the HuffPo or something yeah and then I was talking about it on stage last night at my weekly stand up show in Los Angeles and I was like oh Lisa and I were talking about this and there's so many crazy things and I go oh how about this one where they think it's like uh, adolescence and I clicked on the article for HuffPo it's gone it's taken down Lisa Traeger is the Aaron Brockovich of the internet it has been taken down. But the, you're forgetting the silliest part, which is it was from 2013. Yes. <laughs> Lisa's like, they could have just edited it out. Like, It's from 2013 that we found, they probably got this message and we're like, oh, fuck. Like, Oh, I wonder if I can find it on like the Wayback Machine or something. Oh my God. But so crazy because the link is like, it still comes up in Google search, but when you click on it, it's like, it's been taken down for editorial reasons or something. And, you know, we're just doing the Lord's work and getting uh, normalized, the normalization of pedophilia. We're trying to combat it, but uh, Listen, we can only do so much. I get involved. I get involved. Um, we, yeah. <laughs> I did get the environment, called. big oil and big pedophilia. We're coming for you. <laughs> well, I also wanted to quickly mention when I got called a bitch at the airport before <laughs> 8 a.m. Because I got involved in something I shouldn't have, but I was still pretty relaxed and calm about it. And then the guy turned around and went, you bitch. <laughs> I like, couldn't believe it. I was there. It was wild. Like a 7.48 a.m. bitch. I was like, I mean, maybe annoying, but like a bitch. <laughs> You And Lisa goes, I'm a bitch, but I can read. It was awesome. Because <laughs> the guy was like not doing what he was supposed to be doing based on signage. Anyway, <laughs> let's get today's episode started. We've got a good one for you. He actually looks like a dad that was on the first season of Wife Swap, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> that's not all a right, reference for all. Okay, listen, we're starting. We're starting. We're starting. 
All right, all right. Um, oh, I just did a podcast the other day where I had to do a Matthew McConaughey imitation, and I know you like my imitation, so I did. I did do it. I do. Um, I think that is your secret talent is impressions, <laughs> especially of the elderly, like rich of the elderly rich. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's that's grandmother. If anyone yeah. has seen us live, they fucking know. Yeah. That's why you got to come to the live shows, guys. I'm whipping out impressions at those live shows. Um, all right. So we're doing today Solitary, season 11, episode Not three. to be confused with Solitaire, which is fun. Which is fun. Solitary, way less fun as we find out in this episode. Um, this episode came out October of 2009. It's autumnal. Um, and and we, oh, you know what? I'm going to do something that I've never done. I'm going to bring up Silence of the Lambs. Ooh. How did he get such a nice cage with like classical music? Like, how did he get such good digs? I think those were um, concessions he was given for helping Clarice. Like, for helping Clarice, he gets the music. The, the, the clear cage is because, like, he cannot have bars. He will kill someone. Like, he's too smart. <laughs> like, so he gets the clear cage, like, because he's, like, uh, terrifying. But then I believe, if I remember correctly, the music is something he gets because he's helping an FBI agent and she's, like, giving him little okay. crumbs. Okay. That's so funny because my friend Alice, who is, like, a film prophet, like, she teaches film in Philadelphia. She was just sent me yesterday an article about Jonathan Demme and how like the production designer when he first told her his idea for Silence of the Lambs was like, are you crazy? Like you want to make a movie about a man who skins women and wears their, like kills women and wears their skin. And um, it swept all the Oscar categories and no movie has done that since. Like no movie has, I think, won director, picture, actor, actress, and screenplay. Wow. Yeah. Pretty crazy. I remember, I think I've talked about it on the podcast, but I couldn't stay up late enough to watch the Oscars that year. And when I woke up, my dad woke me up for school. And the first thing I said was, did Silence of the Lambs win? Like, I was like, why am I so obsessed with this movie? It, it actually really disturbed me when I was a kid and I probably watched it too young. Okay, so back to SVU a different kind of disturbing. We open on a young douche yammering on his phone on a business call. And I can tell he's a douche because he's wearing like a purpley button down and it's unbuttoned way too far under his blazer. He's holding a bouquet of like hot pink hydrangeas, it looks like maybe. And he tells a person on the phone, he's like, I promised Lily I'd celebrate our seven month anniversary. I can't do work right now. And it like, you know, we all know seven months is an extremely important uh, relationship milestone. And he's like, she's a chick, you know how it is. And like, as he's letting himself in, he tells the guy, it's after 10, I'm already late and she's going to kill me. It's like, yeah, to after 10 on an anniversary night, it's like, you might as well not be doing anything. So well, the time doesn't matter. It's the, it's the three hours that matters, you know. The, that he was supposed to be there. Yeah, three hours. Yeah. Oh, I thought for some reason you meant like 10 o'clock is too late at night. I'm like, even if this was in the afternoon, it would be a problem. But I get what you're saying. Now. Yeah, like I feel like, <laughs> I don't know. He's like, got to get home for my anniversary thing. And it's like, it's almost time to end the night. Like, I don't know. But, but he's definitely a low-level um, trader at Bear Stearns or something. Yes, exactly. If Bear Stearns does that, I, I have no idea. Yes, that's the vibe. <laughs> and they do. And they did before they went completely bankrupt. Um <laughs> So he, 
lets himself into the apartment and there's like some slow jam music playing and he sees clothes and heels on the ground like a sexy, you know, little scavenger hunt. And he's like, all right, I gotta go. Don't call me. And hangs up the phone and this guy's ready to bone. He starts unbuttoning his shirt. He calls out to his girlfriend and he goes, ready to party with the Parkster? And um, yeah, this man's name is Parker and I do hate him. And he goes, big guy's been aching for you all day, referring to the little Parkster, I guess, his penis. And when he gets into the bedroom, the music like intensifies and the camera starts doing these wild smash cuts like to the bed, there's blood on the pillow. To the mirror, it's smashed and there's blood on it. The window, there's it's open and there's a bloody handprint on the window frame. Like it is a lot of like wild doosh, 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 like with the camera. And then the guy is panics and he starts, he starts panicking. He calls 911. He's like, something's happened to my girlfriend. Cut to camera flashes photographing the bloody, bloody handprints and the cops are on the scene. They're given the lowdown. Lily Milton, 23. She lives there with her boyfriend, Parker Hubbard, aka the Parkster. Benson and Stabler are checking shit out. Like, it looks like she was alive when he took her down the fire escape because, like, there's a blood trail. And when then... Uh, when Parker hears fire escape, he goes, oh, it's got to be that perv. And they're like, who are you talking about? And he's like, this guy from downstairs, he lives below us and he's been peeping on us. And the whole last month, he's been spying on us while we have sex. Lily called the cops. They didn't do anything. And Liv is like, no, they're probably out looking for him. And it's like, no, Olivia, cops are not all as good as you. Like, they're just not look. And he's like, how can it be that hard to find him? The guy lives downstairs. Oh, so that's when we find out he lives downstairs. I jumped the gun. So at first we think it's just a peeping Tom, but now we find out it's a neighbor. They knock on the downstairs apartment door and who comes to the door but an actor named Stephen Ray. He's an Irish actor. He's from Belfast, from Northern Ireland, I guess. And I recognize him from The Crying Game. And he got nominated for that for an Oscar for that. That's mostly where I know him from. But when I look at his IMDb, he's been in a ton of stuff. V for Vendetta, Interview with a Vampire. That's he's where also- I know him from. Because I was like, how do I know him? And yeah, I, yeah. Viver Vendetta did make a big impact on me. I, you know, I was just, I saw that on Delta the other day and I go, I should watch this. People talk about it all the time and I've never seen it. Well, it might be one of those things that was really prolific to me as like a, a junior high, high schooler that maybe now will be like, yeah, capitalism's bad. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's, <laughs> it's now cool. it feels like yeah. Now it feels like a Barbie speech about feminism. I got it. Well, um, yeah. Well, I yeah. don't know. I don't know. I hopefully Maybe it's not. good. But I remember it rocked my world. <laughs> it, it also like the ending was like Arlington Road esque in terms of like it taught me what suspense, shock, surprise. Wow. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, Maybe on the next Delta, I'm gonna watch it. Maybe we'll do it together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got to watch it. But he's also... But it's kind of like when I went to the Incubus concert. Obviously, they're so good. It was like so great. I've been... I've had a resurgence. But the lyrics, like I understand why I liked it in high school. You know, the lyrics are like, I don't want to talk to you anymore. (laughs) Stuff like that. (laughs) Leave me alone. Live Um, your life. It might pass you by. Like those (laughs) are... So I understand why at 15, I was really connected. But <laughs> the other that just reminds me the other day when Jared was putting Rosie to bed, she goes, Dad, viva la vida, live your life. Just right. <laughs> <laughs> what is she talking about? Um, but that that's so funny that like Crying Game like was a huge movie when I was a kid because it was so like, you know, just the whole, I mean, it was before anybody talked about 
trans identity and stuff like that. And it was just like, have you seen The Crying Game? Have you seen The Crying Game? Like, it was just such a like buzzy movie when I was a kid. And um, like, I remember being like, I'm not allowed. It's NC-17. Or like, I didn't think I was allowed to see it or whatever. Um, But he is, you know, that is a popular movie for him as well. But he's in a ton of BBC stuff like across the pond and because that's where he lives. Uh, So now Stabler goes to introduce Olivia and himself. But this guy goes, Elliot Stabler. He knows exactly who he is. And he goes, then he goes, and they say lightning never strikes twice. And Stabler's like, you know, the memory is not memorying for him. He's like, um, do we know each other? And he goes, how could you forget? The last time we met, you put me in jail for 19 years. Cut to a signature Stabler squint, and then it's the credits. So now we're at the precinct and Stabler's talking about how in 1989, he was just a uniform cop when Callum Donovan, uh, who is Stephen Ray's character, and some pals were robbing a bank and they literally ran into Stabler. So it was like a lucky break for him. And, you know, Liv's like, you don't even look old enough to shave in this photo. But I guess even though he was this like young new cop, he got promoted quickly because the higher-ups were impressed by this bust that he didn't even really make. He just kind of was in the right place at the right time. So then Cragen goes, so you made your bones on his back. And Cragen should have a coffee table book. Like the things that Cragen says, like his little one-liner sayings, <sighs> they're so copy and like so, what? You made your bones on his back? Like I don't even know what they mean half the time. So they ask, oh, does he have any sex crimes on his record? No, the robbery is this guy's only crime and he only got out a year ago. Liv thinks it's possible that he came out with a different MO, like almost 20 years in prison. Like that can change a person. And apparently though, there's no evidence of him in the apartment, but his prints are all over the fire escape. The blood trail goes down to the street and then stops at the curb. He must have put her in a car. He doesn't have a car registered to him, but he could have borrowed one or stolen one. His apartment is totally clean, like no blood or anything there. And Cragen's like, uh, why don't you get in there and dance with your old pal and get him to talk uh, and give up where he stashed the girl? He says that to Stabler. So now Stabler goes in and is like, where's the girl? And the guy's like, I don't know. And he's like, I've only seen her in the stairwell. And the only reason I'm on the fire escape is to get to the roof. He likes the outdoors where he can breathe. And Stabler's running this his like fantasy game on the guy. Like, nah, you like looking at her. You like putting your hands in your pants. You haven't had a woman in so long. And then one day, you know, whatever. He's doing his little storytelling time. And then Donovan is not budging. He's like, I didn't do any of this shit that Stabler is implying. Like, stop. And then meanwhile, Liv is talking to the Parkster and he's pissed because he pays $3,500 for that apartment a month and Donovan assaults them and Liv is like, did he assault you? And he's like, with cigarette smoke, the apartment reeks and Lily is allergic. They called the landlord and the landlord wants him out too because it's a rent control place. And now we're back to Donovan and Sabler and he's lived in that apartment since he was 10. It's a family apartment. I was wondering how you know, coming out of prison. He lived in like a nice apartment building, but it's his family's apartment since he was 10. And he goes, and now some Johnny come lately wants to tell me I can't light up at home. He goes, I go to the the roof to be nice, but she's a nut. And then we cut to, she's a saint, Parkster says. She teaches underprivileged kids art. She reads books on tape to the blind. She just started medical school. And this guy threatened to cut her throat if she didn't stop running her mouth. And then Donovan's like, I didn't even hold the knife in my hand. It was on my belt. Words or words, you know, whatever. He tells Stabler when he was in prison, he lost his mom. He says he sat in a cage for 20 years and he goes, I go to work every day. I visit my PO. I piss in a cup. I'm not giving anyone an excuse to put me back inside. I didn't touch the girl. And uh, he says, uh, sure, she was a pain in the ass. And then right as he says that, 
who comes breezing into the room, but one of my all-time fucking favorites, Jessica Walter, as defense attorney Petra Gilmartin. I thought of you immediately. The moment I saw her on the screen, I went, oh, this is going to be a big moment for Kara. I think up until recently when I started this podcast, my Instagram bio was a quote of hers from Arrested Development. And I just love her so much. And she passed away a couple of years ago, I think. And I, I I love her. And she's so fucking funny on Arrested Development. She's like a masterclass in comedy. Anyway, she gets to be a little bit funny here, but not super, super a comedic part. And she goes, uh, so after he goes, she's a pain in the ass. She breezes in and goes, and so are you, Cal. What happened? She's there to represent him. She wants to talk to her client alone because she says... He's like, how'd you know I was here? And she goes, Virginia called me when you missed your date. So we'll get to that later. And she's like, Stabler, I want to talk to my client alone. Go do some squats in the hallway. And then Stabler leaves. We see one of my favorites who's controversial. No, people don't like her, but I really like her. It's EADA, which I believe is executive ADA or something, Sonia Paxton, played by Christine Lottie. Um, She's holding a coffee cup that is probably three quarters vodka because the next episode after this is hammered where she does get busted for drinking on the job. And um, she's asking questions immediately like the ball buster she is. She's like, what about the boyfriend? He's clear. Uh, Lily was last seen at five. Parker was at work till 10. And you know why I remember, isn't she the one that like won an Emmy or Golden Globe, but she was in the bathroom yes. and then had to like run on stage or something? Yes. She was like, I was in the toilet. Yes. Yeah, re- that's how I remember her. Famously. Christine Lottie. Yeah. Yeah. Christine Lottie. I, I really love her. She's in a show called Evil that Jared and I watch that has a lot of um former SVU people on it. And she's really great. And so she's like, guys, you have no evidence. You have nothing tying this guy. Like we're not, you know, we need more than this. Just then Jessica Walter like raps on the glass and goes, charge him or come say goodbye. So she goes, next time you want to talk to him, you call me. And then um, Donovan, who has been uh, working with a pretty wild accent the whole time goes, if you want to find me, you can find me at Woik. Like he says Woik like Porky Pig, and it really made me laugh. Suddenly, Parker comes flying out of nowhere, the boyfriend, and starts screaming at Donovan, like, where's Lily? He goes to throw a punch. Donovan gets on his knees and goes, not resisting, not resisting. And the Parkster still manages to kick him in the gut before the cops get a handle on him. And then she says, all right, I'll let this one slide. But if he touches my client one more time, he's doing time. So next, we're at a construction site in Bayonne, I guess, where Donovan wakes, and they just are standing there staring at him and watching him work from afar. And then the boss comes up with Donovan's time card and is like, here you go. He clocked out at five. And they're like, well, that works with the timeline. And they're like, he goes, well, he didn't go home. It was payday. We all went for drinks. I left at seven and Donovan was still there drinking. And the boss is like, you know, people can change. I don't think he's good for this. And Liv is like, well, they don't always change for the better. And the guy the hard hats like, all right, lady, and just walks away. And then Stabler wants Munch and Finn to stay on Donovan. He's like, I don't want to be out here in the hot sun. And he asks Olivia if he wants to go get a cold one. I didn't realize Stabler was allowed to like boss Munch and Finn around, but I guess he does because they go to get a beer and Munch and Finn now have to stand. They keep talking about how hot it is in New York at this time. So at the bar, they're talking to the bartender about Donovan and she's like, he didn't do it. He was here till 8.30. And then Stabler clocks at the bartender seems really interested in Cal Donovan. And she's like, he's like, 
let's talk. And so she comes over and this character's name is Betty Jean. And she's played by an actress named Bernadette Quigley. And I just like that name. That sounds like a cartoon character to me. And she's been in two other SVUs, one Scourge and, and one in the 500th episode which I guess SVU just called the 500th episode because it had the right amount of letters in it. Betty Jean, or BJ, as I will call her, has known Cal her entire life. It broke her heart when he went to prison. Then one day he walks into her bar and it's like no time has passed. She tells them that they've been kind of trying to rekindle things, but that night he kept begging her to go upstairs, but he was hammered and he couldn't get it up. Or as she says, he couldn't cut the mustard. And uh, he called her a whore, broke a lamp, and stormed off. So now... They think this all works. Like, he leaves around 8.30. He's home. I mean, he gets home. He's drunk. He's pissed off. He sees Lily. It's a perfect storm to attack her. And then they get, you know, the phone call. At this moment in time, they always get a phone call that's like, we're on our way. A body was just found in the water off the coast of Staten Island, and the description matches Lily. When they get there, done, done, there's no body because the girl is alive. It's another miracle on the Hudson, the EMS guy cracks, which is a reference to Sully Sullenberger landing a plane on the Hudson, which did happen earlier the year that this episode came out. So they just see Lily clinging to life in the ambulance with like an oxygen mask, and that's the end of Act 1. At the top of Act 2, she's being rushed into the hospital, having just been brought back from cardiac arrest. She's wrapped in a metallic blanket. She's hypothermic, according to blonde surfer doctor, who we have commented on many times. He does not look like he belongs in New York City emergency room. And he's like, he go, they go, is she going to make it? And he goes, she's not dead until she's warm and dead. What? I, I guess that's like he needed to warm her up quickly, but it seemed like a weird comment. The parkster comes busting in. Where's Lily? How's she doing? And they're like, she's alive, but whatever, hanging on. And he goes, I have to tweet this to her. Fo her followers need to know. And it's like, oh no, what is this man's issue? He started a Twitter account called Where's Lily? And he already has over 2,300 friends. Nobody on Twitter is your friend. And also 2300s are not that many if he thinks he's like running some kind of viral Twitter account. In a day, and in a couple days, that's a lot. <laughs> Without a funny little tweet, that's a lot. Yeah, you're right. Local and it's local. Um, so now we've got online looky-loos. Stabler, a.k.a. Clint Eastwood says, he's like such an Wait, old man. I like looky-loo. Is that merch? Looky-loo is fun. That's not the first time it's been mentioned in an episode. Yeah, Maybe they just talk about looky-loos all the time. Maybe I want a friendship bracelet. That's what I'm, I want a friendship bracelet with the beads. I want yeah. a looky-loo. <laughs> a looky-loo, yeah. Looky-loo, looky-loo. Yeah, because it's like people that are peeping, peeping around crime scenes. So this guy, the doc, okay, so now the doctor comes out. It's been 10 full seconds since he went in and he's like, okay, we've got our temperature back up. <laughs> like it's a total insane thing that the human body's temperature could like raise that quickly. And she's conscious and sh but showing signs of post-traumatic retrograde amnesia. And Parker's like, what does that mean? And it's like memory loss, dumbass. So the detectives barge in with Parkster in tow and he goes to her bedside. And this is the first time we've actually really seen her. And I recognize this woman is Deborah Ann Wall. And I know her as the baby vampire Jessica on True Blood. That is like her claim to fame for me. Um, but I looked up other stuff she's done. I think she's done some like, you know, CW Marvel stuff, but I don't, I'm not sure. She has no idea how she got into the Hudson River. She remembers coming home from school. It was seven o'clock. She took a shower. She heard someone in the apartment, a man. She thinks it was the creep from downstairs, but she's not sure. It's all a blur. There was glass breaking. Then her head hurt. She passed out. She came to in a car and then she was in a dark room and it was freezing cold. The door was locked and someone put a bag over her head and she 
she couldn't breathe and now she's getting upset. And the doctor's like, everybody get out of here. And so Cragen's like, all right, we got nothing. Like we got her with amnesia saying maybe it's the downstairs guy. They go over the timeline and they figure out, oh, well, maybe he hid her somewhere. Like, and then after we caught on to him, he went back there and dumped her body. But Munch and Finn have been on him all day. So like, when would he have done that? Uh, and they're like, well, he works at the docks, a good place to dump a body. And it's like in broad daylight with all his coworkers, I'm confused how they think that's like an easy like place to dump a body. This is when the, the detectives are the worst when they do not do detectiving, when they have yes. their theory and they're just like trying to find everything for the theory is when they're the worst. Yeah. When they're the most absolutely. upsetting. Yeah. Or when and they, Craig and makes fun of an addict. Like, that's always confusing, yeah. too. <laughs> when they try to just, yeah, force everything into a narrative that they've come up in their heads so that what they get credit for being the smartest detective, I don't know. But she also said she was freezing and it's been boiling in New York City, so maybe she was in some kind of refrigerated storage unit at the docks. Yeah, why wouldn't there be a refrigerated storage unit down at this construction site? That makes sense. So now they're down there, and there is one, and CSU is checking the fridge. There's no sign of Lily, no hairs, no fibers or blood. Stay Stabler starts showing her Stabler starts. Stabler starts showing her pictures to all the workers. And Donovan's like, why don't you just cuff me? And Finn and Munch show up and tell Stabler they've been following Parker's tweet fest. And a lot of freaks are saying they saw her like with aliens or that she was abducted and whatever. But then there's one tweet from a person named Tracy who goes, I saw her around midnight outside my store arguing with a dude. And I wish I had done something. And then Donovan was in custody at midnight. So maybe Tracy got the time wrong. So cut to a convo with Tracy at Copy Quick where she works, which is like a Kinko's situation. And she is a woman who knows her shit. She is like a, a I love this character. Like love just her. like an amazing, huge gold plate necklace, pink lipstick, like tan just a wild New York character. And she's like, I did not get the time wrong. I know when my shift ends. And I saw her and she was going at it arguing with some guy and it was at midnight. So then they show her a picture of Donovan and she's like, no way. It was this Asian guy, kind of like ugly, cute and much, much younger. Did I just solve the crime? And she like, I'm obsessed. I want her to have her own crime solving show. And she goes, I even have the receipt and Stabler goes, you never said she came in here. And she goes, I didn't. I guess I was caught up with the fight and her being a murder victim. And Stabler's like, she's not dead. And it's like, this girl is pure comedy. Um, so she was like, see, look, she came in at 1143 and she used Terminal 5 for 46 minutes. And her boss has them copy IDs in case terrorists try to use their computers. Now Stabler looks so confused because, oh my God, could it be you were wrong that this isn't that you, like, you know, you had the wrong guy? In the hospital, Lily is asleep with a big bandage on her head. Not an all the way around, but just a big, you know, big square. And Benson and Stabler come barging in and ask her, who's Billy Chang? And she goes, just some guy I know. He's also in medical school and has a rap sheet for selling crystal meth. So explain these emails. Billy, can you stop by? Billy, where are you? You know how everyone's always emailing their drug dealer. Obviously, Stabler has printed up the emails and is showing them. She denies it's even her email address and he's like, cut the shit. CSU told us that you created this email address on your desktop. Stop. And um, you're not a victim. You weren't abducted. You weren't thrown in the river. You were online at Copy Quick scoring drugs. And she's like, you don't even understand. And they're like, so tell us, make us understand. She goes, I had a bad day at med school. They gave me a gross old lady cadaver and I was so creeped out. It's like, oh my God, you're not cut out to be a doctor. Like you can't. She had to like come, she's like, I came home. I had to shower to get the smell of death off of me of this disgusting gross old lady. And then she got pissed that Parker didn't show up. 
because it is 10 o'clock when he's trying to come in for their date or after 10. So she emailed Billy to score. He said he didn't have anything. So she trashed her apartment looking for her own stash. I guess went into an absolute mania, banged her head on the mirror. There was blood everywhere. She freaked out when she looked at how bad the scene looked with like blood and broken shit and, you know, whatever. So she heard Parker come home. He doesn't know about her habit. She heard Parker coming home, took off down the fire escape and went to go find Billy. Meanwhile, she saw what Parker had been posting online with his little Twitter account about her abduction. And what was she going to do? She couldn't like say, hey, I, I flipped out because I couldn't get drugs. So she jumped into the river, but she's like, but I didn't think it would take you guys so long to find me. And they're like, are you fucking... And she's like, look, I almost died. And Stabler gets set off. Like he is activated Stabler. He's like, you want pity from us? You're willing to send an innocent man to prison to cover your ass. And then Olivia cuffs her to the bed and Stabler takes off and she's like, where are you going? And he's like, to apologize. So he's headed over to Donovan. Now we're at Donovan's place and Stabler finds him on the rooftop and he goes to apologize and Donovan like stands up and walks towards him and without saying a word, kind of switch places with him and pushes Stabler off of the roof of this big building. We pan down below to see Stabler's lifeless body. It has landed on a shorter building's roof and not the street below, thankfully, but it's not a great situation. It definitely was a many-foot fall. And if you have been to our live shows, we used to show a compilation of Stabler getting his ass kicked, and this was in it. And it is quite a wild moment because you think he could be dead. Um, well, yeah, I'm sure when people were watching it live on NBC, they were shocked right before the commercial. You know what I mean? Yeah. He splayed out on the, on the whatever, the ground, a roof Yeah, landing? the top, I don't the roof. Know. Yeah, the, the other roof, the adjacent roof. Yeah, so now, like scary. Yeah. So now, I mean, it's like I was scared in wildlife when he got shot. I was like, oh my God, he's going to die. Even though it's like when you think about it, it's like they're not killing Elliot Stabler, you know? Like, well, yeah, just... I guess this is before Game of Thrones. I'm trying to think if anyone yeah. did shocking things in television like this before Game of Thrones. Uh... Yeah, there were definitely like crazy deaths in television. Oh, who shot like... JR? That was like a big... And who shot oh. Mr. Burns? <laughs> Those were big. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times that's because they're writing a character off because of like the bad behavior or they got offered something else or whatever. And I guess, because I think in season 12, when he does leave, everybody was kind of shocked at the end of season 12. So in season 11, I don't know if anybody had an inkling about that. But anyway, Stabler's eyes are open in the top of act three. He's sitting on his back, still on the roof. And we hear his walkie-talkie like buzzing with like, 1043, whatever. He whispers into it. He he can manage just to reach for it, whispers into it, 1013, officer down. So now we cut to the hospital. We got Liv, Cragen, and Sonia surrounding his hospital bed. He's in a neck brace with like an ice pack on his shoulder, like the kind of ice pack I just have in my freezer. And I don't know, it's like, feels like your whole body would be pretty fucked. I don't know what one little ice pack on the shoulder is doing, but uh, Sonia's cracking a joke about him taking a nap on the job. And they don't know where Donovan is, but they're going to get him. And Stabler tries to come up Oh, Stabler tries to get up with fully like a possible spinal injury, like a moron that he is. He's like, I'm fine. It's like, okay, truly you fell from like 20 feet at least. And Cragen makes him sit his ass back down. And Sonia's like, okay, gotta go. LMK when you find Donovan. And when you do, don't touch a hair on his head. I think they're worried. They're scared of Jessica Walter at this point. Um, Finn enters and said, they've got eyes on his job and his girlfriend's bar, and there's no sign of him so far. They dumped his phone, and his most frequent call is to Veronique St. John. And 
Cragen says, that sounds like a porn star. Thanks, Cragen. And then Stabler remembers, no, remember when the woman, when the attorney showed up, it was because someone named Veronique had called her to say that he didn't show up for their date. So now we get to this brownstone facility or this like, you know, big door in Manhattan. And Veronique St. John is standing there answering questions in her bathrobe in the doorway. And she saw Donovan the night before, but she didn't know the cops were looking for him. And she doesn't ask her clients questions like that. Finn asks if she's a hooker and she takes huge offense. She's like, the hell I am. This is a private group home and Mr. Donovan's mother is a resident here. So they're like, well, he told Stabler that he lost his mother. And Veronique clarifies. She's like, well, he did lose her to Alzheimer's. Like she's here, but she thinks he's... Her husband, Tommy, who died in World War II and really has no concept of, of reality, and he visits her every night. So they go to the room of the mother, and Donovan is in there with his mom. And he goes, I'll go quietly, just don't wake her up. And Finn's like, "Uh, yeah, you threw my friend off a roof, so I'm not going to be quiet for your mom, and starts like grabbing him. Then the mom wakes up, and he goes along with the charade that he's his dad and goes, I got to go, I'm shipping out. And um, she's like, one more kiss for your best girl. And he does kiss her on the cheek. It's a really weird scene because it's like, she's looking at her son like she's in love with him. And uh, in a romantic way, not in a mother-son way. And they cuff Donovan and they take him out. So when they get outside, he immediately tries to run. He's going for suicide by cop. Like, he's like, shoot me. What are you waiting for? I killed your partner. And Livia is like, he's not dead. Lily lied and Elliot was coming to apologize to you. If you had waited another second, you'd be all good. And he looks, you know, devastated because the truth is sinking in. Here's the other weird thing. Isn't it weird that Lily made up the whole thing about being in a freezing cold place with a bag against uh, on her head and there happens to be a refrigerated area at Donovan's workplace? Just seems like a lot of uh, coincidences because she really did truly make up the whole thing. At the precinct, Donovan is in interrogation. Sonia shows up and says, um, no one talks this to him. This guy should sue her. Yeah. Yeah. Sue ass. I wonder if the couple's going to stay together. We'll see. If the Twitter account loses followers, I think Parker's going to bounce. So at the precinct, Donovan is in interrogation. Sonia shows up and goes, no one talks to him, including you, to Stabler. And he's like, bitch, I've been thrown off a roof and I'm not in the mood to be told what to do. So he heads right in there and she goes, Stabler! And he shuts the door right in her face. And honestly, the timing is so perfect. I'd love to talk to someone to tell me like how many times they had to do that because he's like, whatever, goes in. She goes, Stabler, smack right away the door. It's really funny. He tells Donovan, get up. But Donovan won't get up. He's just sitting there quiet. And so he lifts him up by like the scruff of his neck and his shirts or whatever. And that's when Cragen and Sonia bust in to stop him and they take Donovan out. And he tells Sonia, I don't work for you. And she's like, well, I'm not going to watch you give this guy the full stabler. And he's like, I was just trying to take him to central booking. And Sonia's like, it's not your case. You're the victim. And she gets all sarcastic like, oh, does the word victim offend big, strong Elliot Stabler, the tough guy? He goes, you don't know me. She goes, I read your file. He goes, you've had a hard-on for me since the day you walked into this squad. She laughs and um, she's like, I have problems with anyone who doesn't play by the rules. And he's like, your rules. You act like the law is scripture, but you don't give a damn about the law. You just want control. I know you. I see perps like you every day who walk in here and gotta have control or the world farts, falls apart. And inside, they're scared. Wow, you slipped and said shart and fart in this episode already. Yeah, what did I say? Falls you apart. You said fart. fart. <laughs> okay. He goes... 
The perps like you have to have control or the world falls apart and inside they're scared, weak, and damaged. And she's like, you could tell while he's saying these words to her, it's like hitting, like her face is like, she's not like tough girl Sonia anymore. And then she slaps Elliot across the face and he like shakes it for a sec, a millisecond and then grins at her. And she looks like a frightened little child. Like she's like, I just smacked somebody. Oh God. And, but also this guy has my number. So he walks out she looks frightened. She's like, oh no, I might lose my job. Now at arraignment, Donovan pleads not guilty. Sonia asks for remand. Donovan thought he was about to be arrested for a crime he did not commit. He's not responsible for the crime that he did commit. Um, And they're going for a psychiatric defense. And Sonia says, he has no history of mental illness in his prison records. And Jessica Walter's like, yeah, prisons aren't really great at documenting stuff like that. And he spent the majority of his sentence in solitary confinement. He was isolated with no human contact and it's made him psychotic. And he... They were like, he's been out for a year and had no issues. And they're like, she says, um, Jessica Walter goes, he regressed under the thought of reincarceration. So Petrovsky is there, our dearly departed Joanna Merlin, who has recently passed away and who is a legend in her own time and the SVU universe. She agrees. It sounds like there's issues here that need to be laid out for the jury, but she also agrees to the remand. And he begs, he's like, please don't put me back. And his lawyer asks if the judge can order that he'll be placed in Gen Pop. But she's like, that's really not my job or my jurisdiction. Like I can't really control the Department of Corrections. And he rants about how, yeah, pass the buck. You all, you, 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 you all throw people in prison and then walk away. You turn a blind eye to torture. And Sonia's like, oh, were you beaten? Were you waterboarded? And he was like, it's just as bad what they did to him. And then, and then whatever, they care, they take him out. And then Stabler and Sonia kind of have a brief look and then he saunters out of court like real lackadaisical. He's halfway down the court steps when Sonia runs after him and we think there's going to be a big apology and she goes, Stabler, I've got to talk to you. And then when he stops to talk to her, she goes, I mean, this Donovan defense is bullshit. And he's like, that's what you had to tell me? She's like, I mean, you and I can see through it, but the jury might buy it. On the stand, I want you to really stare down Donovan, make him look you in the eye when he excuses pushing you off of a roof. And then he goes, I got to hand it to you, Sonia. Yeah, you really know how to get under people's skin. And she goes, oh, right. Uh, the little thing that happened yesterday with the slap. Can we just call it a truce? And she puts out her hand and he does not shake her hand, but he like sm- gives her like a half smile and goes, truce. So now top of act four, back at the precinct, we've got Munch on a rant, but this time I agree with his rant. He's talking about how humans are social creatures and prolonged isolation warps our humanity. The Brits actually studied it and said that a solitary confinement causes psychosis and they stopped using it. And when they did, inmate violence actually goes down. Finn's not really buying the argument that solitary equals torture, even though he's like, yeah, if you treat criminals like actual people, it is better, but I don't know if solitary is torture. And then... He's like, why would you not think that? They use it in in Iran. They use it in Abu Ghraib, prisoners of war. Like all kinds of places use solitary confinement as one of their methods of torture. And then Munch goes, the mind can survive prison, but we aren't wired to be alone. And then Liv pipes in and goes, well, when I was in prison, the worst part was never being alone. Like I had no privacy, no quiet, even on the toilet. I would have killed to do a stint in the hole. And it's like, Olivia, you're on the wrong side of this here. Munch points out that people prefer free-range chickens to chickens that have been kept in cages. And he goes, we treat poultry better than humans. And Stabler's like, he threw me off a roof. And Liv thinks that this whole insanity, solitary confinement thing is a smokescreen. 
So now at trial, Jessica Walter asked Donovan why he got put in solitary confinement and he explains his story. Because at first I was like, why did you, why were you in solitary for the majority of 19 years when all you did was rob a bank? That's like a nonviolent offense. Like what, you know, what happened? So uh, apparently what ha- when he got there, the Aryan Brotherhood tried to recruit him. He said no fucking way. And then they tried to jump him in the shower. He shivved him. One guy never walked again. So he got put in solitary in 1993. And then he, it wasn't until 2007 that he was really out of solitary. Um, and they were, she's Can like- Can you fucking imagine? Oh, fucking insane. Like the fact that he's not just like sh- shaking and talking to himself constantly is, he's a miracle of science to me. Um, and the his lawyer is like, wow, 14 years in solitary for a fight. And he's like, well, whenever the guards would come to get me, I was paranoid they were coming to kill me, so I would fight back. And then they would just tack on more time in solitary. So it just kept happening and happening. And then in the end, they just left me there. He said, it was like death, except you're still breathing. All you hear is your breath, days, months, years. At first, you sleep 12 to 14 hours at a time. Then you can't sleep anymore. He'd watch his shadow till it came alive and started talking to him. He knew the voices were in his head, but he couldn't shut them out. And now there's all these, they're playing these whispering sound effects on the show and it's really creepy. Like, it's really scary. Um, And he's like, the voices are telling me, you know, pluck your eyes out, chew off your hands, all this stuff. And he still hears the voices when he's alone. He copes, he says, by working, walking for hours on end. He's afraid to sleep. He sits on the roof all night because he wants to just hear the sounds of the city, anything that will block out the voices. So when Stabler came onto the roof, he heard the voice again and the voice was laughing at him and pulling him back into the hole of solitary confinement. And he tells Stabler you'll never know what it's like to be truly alone. Endless days without seeing a face or hearing a voice. You can't imagine it unless you wind up there yourself. And then we get more squinty Stabler. Like, you know, that Stabler squints when he's something's making him think. So now, Stabler is at Sing Sing and he's got a corrections officer who's his pal checking out Donovan's cell, taking him to see Donovan's cell. And he's like, uh, you owe me. And the guy's like, okay, well, this is, you know, this is the favor. Consider our debt paid. So Stabler steps into the cell and the guy goes, don't do anything stupid. And he shuts the door. And the guy who's playing this corrections officer is named Glenn Fleshler. And he's been in the episode Angels. He was in the episode Intent that we covered. He was the shitty lawyer that I think called the girl when she was trying to, um, the social he media was. influencer. He... And then he's also in two ep- two recent episodes as well. He came onto the scene for me at True Detective. Oh, wow. Is he the guy? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And, he was, but he's... also, he is the Hasidic Jew that Charlotte has sex with in Sex and the City in the episode Secret Sex. Oh my gosh. Wow, this guy is prolific. Um, Yeah, he's been working. No, he has so many credits. But True Detective, I feel, is like, for me, what put him on the map. Yes. I knew I recognized him when I saw him and then I looked up his SVU, like, past only. And, but I do remember him as that shitty lawyer. But yes, True Detective for sure. That season had me by the neck. Like, I was obsessed with that show. Oh, my God. Season one of True Detective, like, it was a huge moment. So crazy. I think it was one of the first, like, mini-series in that way that was, like, you know, seen as, like, a cinematic. Yeah. Like a movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, people really liked it. But he's in Billions. 
Oh, that's okay. I don't he's watch like that. A, I don't either. He's in 36 episodes. Though. Oh, okay. So he's one of the major billions people. Well, he was in the thing about Pam. <laughs> oh my gosh. I wonder who he plays. I never <laughs> saw that. I just listened to the Dateline podcast of it. I didn't either, but I want to. Wait, I want to listen. I want to know the thing about Pam. The podcast is so funny because first of all, it's only six episodes. It's so quick to listen to, but Keith Morrison, listening to his voice is amazing. Like to listen to him on a podcast, he's like, and then Pam, like it's so good. Okay. I, I'm obsessed. I don't listen. I haven't listened to anything else to be honest on the Dateline podcast since, but I liked the Pam one a lot. It's unhinged. So anyway, we have come to believe that now Stabler is putting himself in solitary confinement for some amount of time to understand what it's like. And this man will truly do anything to get away from his wife and kids. We see him doing sit-ups, push-ups, then he's sleeping, getting food. But whenever they bring him the food, he's like, what time is it? And they won't tell him the time. So that's part of it. Like, it is truly wild how like, I know this is such a small example comparatively, but like the subway in New York, now that they have the counters that tell you how long you have to wait, it makes it like so much more bearable. Like even if the thing says 15 minutes till your next train, 20 minutes till your next train, when you don't know and you're just standing there and you have no idea how much time something is taking, it truly is like nothing moves more slowly than that. And so I think that's what they're trying to illustrate here. Like if someone would just tell him, oh, it's 12 o'clock or whatever, he could figure out, you know, where he is in time. But to just be suspended in time like that is maddening. Then there's more working out. This is truly my nightmare. Like I, I like I'm so solitary confinement is my nightmare and being buried alive. Um, Stabler also starts to hear the little whispers. They start putting the little whisper sound effect on. He wakes up. He thinks he hears shit. There's all these like jolt, him getting jolted awake, more sit-ups, but now he's screaming while he does the sit-ups. He's going crazy. And I, <laughs> yeah, he's like going crazy. And then there's like a cockroach crawling on his food tray. He starts playing with the cockroach with like a big smile on his face. Like it's really gross. And he's really starting to break down. Like they just keep showing him jolting awake, talking to himself the door opens and his friend is there, uh, the true detective guy. And he goes, you son of a bitch. I said three days, not a week. And the guy goes, it was three days. It took three days for Stabler to absolutely unravel and adopt a pet cockroach. So imagine <laughs> these people that are in there for weeks, months, years. Like it's so inhumane in my opinion. It is. I do wonder if that it's a little excessive that it was only three days. Would How? you really have a pet cockroach in three days? I don't know. I don't know what the studies are. I'm sure they've done studies on people in isolation for three days and what happens, you know? Like, I'm sure the show is dramatizing it, but like... Like, he was know. in the military, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, but you're, you should be... I don't know. I just... A full pet cockroach in three days is wild, but... You know, what do I know? Maybe we should do, maybe this will be a fun thing for... <laughs> oh my God. Like, I don't think I would last two hours. I really don't. I think I would go crazy in two hours. Like, this isn't that unbelievable for me because I really, you know, I like don't really do alone time. Like, I thrive off being around other people. So to be by myself for like three full fucking days with just concrete walls around me, I don't know. I can't say I would yeah. survive. Not having yeah. a TV, that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. So... 
Now Stabler is walking into Sonia's office, who's just smoking a cigarette in her office in 2009. I guess that's like right at the cusp of when they started saying that you're not allowed to do this anymore. Uh, And she's like, where the hell have you been? And he's like, the hole. And then he goes, I want to drop the charges. And she goes, don't be a wuss, Stabler. She's like, well, glad you had a fun little trip and found yourself or whatever, but I'm here to put wannabe cop killers away. And if Donovan walks, it's open season on cops for anyone who served a day in solitary. They're all going to say, oh, it made us crazy. And he's like, well, okay, don't make an example out of him, but cut him a deal. She goes, he'd be out in five and then what? He runs down a cop who pulls him over, can't take the chance. He threatens to report her for assault. He pulls out the only card he's got on her and he goes, the DA DA will suspend you. She doesn't even flinch. She goes, go ahead. And then he doesn't do do anything and she goes, thought so. You may have lost your balls in lockup, but I've still got mine. And I can see why a lot of people hate her. I really can, but for some reason I like her and I... I hate the way she, spoiler alert, dies. Um, So cut to the verdict. Attempted murder in the first degree. He's found. Now, here's what I don't understand about it being first degree. First degree is premeditation. Stabler just showed up on that roof and he pushed him. That's not premeditated. No, not at all. It's the cop of it all. Yeah. That's like not... That's, I don't know. That feels like barely second. I don't know. Because also it's not, there's no deadly weapon. He just, you know, it was a push. So anyway, he's found guilty by the jury. Yeah, Stabler came to his roof. Yeah. Yeah. Unannounced. That is, that is weird. I actually am just noticing that. I don't think I noticed when I actually watched, but so they find... Donovan guilty. He slowly puts his head on the table and starts banging his head. And then he starts begging for them to just give him the needle. He's like, kill me. Like, it's really dramatic. And this guy is a great actor. Like, it's really, really horrible. They drag him out. He's just pleading over and over again. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. And Stabler looks fucked up over it. Like, he's... So now he's at a bar having a drink and Sonia sidles up next to him and is like, oh, hey, Stabler, let me buy you a round. And then she tries to toast to a good day for the people. And he's like, bitch, not happening. She says, she does feel... She's like, you don't think I feel sorry for Donovan? And he goes, good for you. You had a shot to do the right thing and you didn't. And then he walks out, leaving her with her little round of drinks that she's probably going to drink both of, to be honest. So now it's Sing Sing. Stabler opens the slot of Donovan's cell and he's in there and he's been beaten up pretty bad, it looks like. And he's drugged on Haldol. And he's like, well, who tuned him up? And the guy goes, he did it to himself. He smashed his head against the wall until we drugged him. And then um, the guy, the corrections officer wakes him up to take him to the medical unit. And he's like confused. And they're like, oh yeah, after he's stable, he gets to go to Gen Pop. And Donovan thanks Stabler, but he's like, it wasn't me. And then Stabler goes, did the warden see the light? And he goes, not until the DA shined it in his eyes. She would not take no for an answer. So we find out Sonia's the one that arranged for him to get into Gen Pop. And he tells Donovan to say goodbye to the hole. And he just stares at Stabler. And then he gets walked away. And that's Dick Wolf, my bambinos. I just want that girl to get years. I know. Like, she fucked this guy over. I mean, he made the decision, you know, to shove. And, you know, hopefully five years he can make it out. But it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Because she truly could have just said, it was a guy. I didn't see his face. Like, even implying it was him. Yeah, they didn't like him. Yeah. That just makes it feel like it's more, like, in like terrible, you know, than what her original crime was. But 
that's that up. And I can't wait to hear what crimes you have to tell me about. There's so many. Stay tuned. Buckle up, guys. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Okay, so um, there's a few crimes and each of them are like a kind of a piece of each of the episodes and none of them actually fit at all. Okay, so the first one is... Uh, the case of Mary Rogers. And this is connected to like the water of it all. The, 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 yeah, just the water. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, and this is, yeah, 1841, July 28th, 1841, guys. Um, two New Yorkers were wandering um, the Hoboken shoreline near the spring at Sybil's Cave, which was a popular tourist attraction at the time since it is the 1800s. Like, I can't imagine how boring their tourist attractions were. So they spotted a body bobbing 200 yards out in the Hudson River. And while they waited on shore for the coroner to arrive, a man approached them. How do you even contact the authorities? It's the 1800s. You're on a dock. Like I know. Everything is so hard for me to picture here. <laughs> but a man approached them and said, oh, I recognize her from her clothing. And that is Mary Cecilia Rogers. Um, records are hard, but um, like because it's so old, but they believe she was born in 1820 in Lyme, Connecticut. Yes, I baby. didn't realize not only Lyme disease was big in Connecticut, I didn't realize Lyme was a town. Yeah, that's where it comes from. That's where the name comes from of Lyme yeah, that's disease. Wild. Yeah. Because the town of Connecticut, of Lyme, Connecticut, I think is where like it was first, I don't know, discovered or whatever. It must suck to be, you know your town is a disease now <laughs> that you've caused. Her and her widowed mom um, moved to Manhattan in the 1830s and they ended up getting some single working class girl jobs. So Mary was a sales girl at a tobacco emporium and then her mother opened a boarding house. 
Um, and so, you know, Mary was working at Anderson's Tobacco Emporium. She was super cool. There was an emerging social scene and young men came by, local writers. And even though people came for the tobacco, Mary was a huge attraction. She was known in the press as the beautiful cigar girl. She became a huge celebrity in Manhattan. So she eventually returned home to help her mother, but was still like the center of male attention. Everyone was kind of obsessed with her. And one person that was super obsessed was a man named Daniel Payne. And he was a cork cutter. And he also was a boarder. (laughs) (laughs) So he cut corks. So he was a boarder who got engaged in the summer of 1841. So Mary and Daniel Payne are engaged in 1841. He is also the last man to have seen her alive. So the morning of July 25th, Mary left the Rogers boarding house and said she was going to go visit an aunt uptown. And after that, nobody knows what's happened to her. And so then uh, this a man um, named Arthur Cromelian, who is Mary's ex, saw the articles written about her missing and took the ferry to Hoboken to search for her. And he that's when he arrived as the witnesses were there and as they were recovering her body. Okay. And so that's... The timing yeah. is wild. Very wild. And the cops didn't find him creepy enough, so they just moved on from the investigation. They were like, ah, this guy seems chill. Okay. Um, but so they turned their attention to Payne, but his alibi checked out, and then no more leads came in. Until September, there was a break in the case. A group of a group a group. A group. <laughs> a group of local boys playing in a field found bundles of bloody clothing in the bushes. And their mother alerted the police. And their mother was named uh, Frederica Loss. And she operated a place called the Nick Moore House and Pub. And she revealed to the cops that Mary had checked into the Nick Moore House on the night she disappeared with an unknown man. The pair went out and never returned. She also said she heard screams in the night from the woods, but didn't think much of it. Huh. Okay. I don't yeah. understand. I don't get it. Um, but I also, uh, a few bars are doing it now, but I do really like a bar that has a hotel in it. Oh, yeah. Gold Diggers does that. Um, do you bar Mel- Covell in um, Los Feliz has like, it's a great wine bar. And then right above are like beautiful rooms, like yeah. really cool b- boutique rooms. I'm into it. I really yeah. love it. But at the Gold Digger bar, they like, um, there's signs in the bar that's like, need a room? Ask a bartender. So it's more, I don't know. I think people are doing creepy shit, but I'm into yeah. it. I'm into it. Okay. So she didn't think anything of the screams. And then October 7th, Payne, um, you know, her fiance was really, really sad. And so he went to go to the place where her clothing was found. And he drank a bottle of laudanum, which is a tincture of opium and alcohol. He overdosed and he was later found a few hundred yards from where Mar- Mary's body was found. The, and then he had a note in his pocket and it read, to the world, here I am on the spot. God forgive me for my misfortune in my misspent time. Huh. Edgar Allan Poe became obsessed with the case and published The Mystery of Mary Roguette and a sequel, uh, Murders at the Rue Morgue. And I don't know. There's a lot of information about how Edgar Allan Poe is just kind of really into this case, but... You know, I like the famous, Raven, famous care. creep, creepiness lover, famous creator of creep. Yeah. So November 6th, 1842, Frederica Loss was accidentally shot by one of her sons. The next 10 days, she was in pain. She was babbling, hallucinating. And she claimed that a young woman was tormenting her 
And then she finally made a final confession. She said that Mary came to Hoboken to get an abortion in the company of this young physician, but she died in the operation and lost a ton of blood. And so Loss's sons dumped the body in the river and scattered her clothing. And in later years, it's even suspected that Loss was working as an assistant to the notorious Hoboken abortionist, Madame Costello. Whoa. Right? Twist. After the mother's death, two of her older sons were briefly charged in connection to the murder, but there was lack of hard evidence or witnesses and, you know, the condition of the mother during the confession. So the case does remain unsolved and no one knows, but... Wow. A body in the river. Okay, so the next one, do you know about this? Margot Kidder's disappearance? Yeah, I remember reading about this a long time ago. I don't know the details, but I remember that she was having some, I th- I think she was having some mental health issues, but. Yeah. So yeah. this is, so Margot Kidder, for those who don't know, was Lois Lane in the Superman movies. And famously for us, she was Chad Lowe's mother slash abuser slash lover and then murder victim on the episode Peak. Um, which was it a very good episode. And her so, performance in that episode is killer. It's so good. I don't like, I don't like something. She goes, it requires a prevaricating nature that I that I despise. Like she just has a great like line delivery. Yeah, one of the rich moms. But then yeah, yeah Benson's like, so if you're so rich, why are you why is there only one bedroom here? Okay. So her career went from so this is, I think, um, quote unquote, like the hoax part of it. Or not the hoax, because something was going on with Margot and right. with that woman. I mean, that woman in the episode is an addict with some yeah. issues, you know. Um, she Margot did not affect a fucking other person's life like the character did. Mm-hmm. So a little bit about Margot. Her career went from stardom to addiction to bankruptcy. And then finally, this disappearance. At the height of her fame, she was, um, you know, Superman blockbusters with Christopher Reeves and was known as the best paid Canadian performer in the U.S., so she showed up to LAX on Saturday night, April 20th, 1996, for a flight to Phoenix on her way to teach an acting class at an Eastern Arizona college. But her flight was actually not till Sunday. So she wandered the airport for several hours. And then at 3 a.m., she noticed a man named Ted Hall. And he was a television reporter from Tennessee. And she saw the cameras and everything. So she asked, oh, are you from the media? And can I hang out with you guys? And she told them she was being stalked by several men hired by her ex-husband to kill her. And she would tell she told them that he makes O.J. Simpson look like Alan Alda. I love that. I do too. That's a great line. She pointed to one man and said, that's him. That's the guy. But the journalist actually remembered him from the flight from Atlanta. So he realized something was off. She did not want to call the police. Um, Instead, she asked for a disguise or just switch jackets because hers was bugged. She eventually left the airport at 4.30 in the morning. The taxi driver did kick her out because she was broke. And so for two days, she wandered for miles on foot and hid from like these phantom stalkers. She approached some people on the street who believed that she was homeless, so they gave her a ride to Glendale and offered to help her find a place to sleep, but all the shelters were full, so they paid $33 for a room at the Bell Motor Motel at 11 p.m. Monday. She appeared at the front desk the next morning wrapped in a bedsheet and asked for scissors to cut her hair. Like, things aren't good. And then finally, at 6 p.m., the cops got a call from a homeowner when they found her behind a bush. 
April of 1996, she was found in Glendale, California, in this backyard. She was dazed and cowering, and she was taken to a psych ward. There was no evidence of foul play. She was missing for three days, and then she was just really scared, paranoid. It was obvious mental distress, according to the police sergeant, Rick Young. She claimed to have been followed and assaulted, but they did not think a crime took place. No alcohol or drugs were found in her system at the time. So this is a true mental kind of collapse. There was Mm -hmm. no alcohol or drugs involved. And before this incident, in 1990, she got into a bad car accident. And that's what kind of started off her spiral. She was not able to work, which put her into debt. And she was going through a lot before this breakdown even happened. And then they found out, you know, she had bipolar disorder. She also became addicted to pain pills after the surgery from the car accident, and she was just in constant pain. She finally had surgery, um, but then her insurance wouldn't pay for it. And then the production company also rejected the insurance's claims. And so she, like, wasn't... But she did get injured on set in Vancouver. She was filming the Nancy Drew Mysteries or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so insurance wouldn't... But it's Canada. What the fuck? Yeah. Is Canada's uh, medical system new? I thought everyone just gets know. gets stuff. So whatever, or maybe because she, maybe she was a citizen here or had a visa. It's all America stuff, but it happened in Vancouver. Very confusing, but it just seems like every turn people were fucking her over. So she lost her home and went bankrupt. And during the three days she was wandering the street, she was like dirty and penniless, delusional, and very alone. Wrote the Washington Post. Sadly, she did die in 2018, and the park coroner's office in Montana revealed that the cause was suicide, um, self-inflicted drug and alcohol use. And a month after she passed, both Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain took their own lives, and it really showed that there needs to be more conversations um, and how it's a really national public health crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And I had no idea about Margot Kidder. Yeah, this sounds also like the Anne Heche thing, you know? Yeah. Just so, so sad. So those two um, cases are just like in connection with the the woman in the beginning. So now we're going to get into sentences, parole, crime, solitary, all of that. So this third um, case we're going to touch on is about Herman Bell. So basically, two cops were shot dead in New York City in Harlem in 1971. The Black Liberation Party, which is an offshoot of the Black Panther Party, took credit for the killings of Joseph A. Piagentini and Waverly M. Jones. Yet, Bell was captured in 1973 in New Orleans, more than two years after the cops were killed, which is kind of wild. A jury convicted three men, Herman Bell, Anthony Bottom, and Albert Washington. They each got a sentence of 25 to life. So Herman Bell served four decades in prison starting in 1979 and then was granted parole in March of 2018. And against all odds, people were hell-bent on keeping him in there. They did not want him out. Like, cop killers are the worst. Like, I don't know. Because a lot of these cases, like even Colleen Stan, we talk about them. I'm like, that man cannot be paroled and he needs to be in jail forever. Mm -hmm. And then when I read something like this, I go, 40 years in prison is a lot. I think it's okay. And so it is just like really hard because it's not, it's not across the board. 
Mm-hmm. It's really hard to kind of discuss these things. So it was the eighth time um, for him in front of the parole board. And the Patrolman's Benevolent Association and a letter from Mayor Bill de Blasio urged the state board to reconsider. De Blasio said that murdering a police officer in cold blood is a crime beyond the frontiers of rehabilitation or redemption, according to the New York Times. I agree with you in the sense that like, I don't know how much, I don't know if 40 years is enough time if you're a member of a person's family and they took them away from you, whatever. Why is a cop more important than a sex worker? You know, why is a cop more important than another person? Like, that's what I kind of don't, it's like, if you're going to just say, this is what the cost of murdering a person is, then that's it. Like to say, murdering a cop in blood, murdering a cop is worse than murdering anyone else. I don't know if I really... No, that's bullshit because actually as a cop, you put your life in danger. That is part of your job. And if that's how we're going to do it, then when cops commit crimes, they should get quadruple the punishment. Like when they abuse their power and sexually assault people and, you know, take like we're about to do another episode where cops did shady shit. Like then they should get, you know, quadruple the crime. If you get quadruple the punishment for hurting them, they should get quadruple the punishment for hurting other people. Oh, yeah. And, well, yeah. And they should also have to pay their own settlements. Yeah. I think a lot of them would maybe behave if they didn't. If they knew it was coming out of their own pockets, yeah. I think for these people, like the Benevolence Association and the mayor and stuff, like to them, it's like they're setting them up like you're a hero already. Mm -hmm. And so killing a hero. But it's like there's a complicated... Everything with cops. There are certainly shit. cop heroes. There are certainly very unheroic, unheroic cops. Yeah, but I don't. I think for them, it's like they're immediately on a pedestal. So killing right. them is worse than exactly. anything. Yeah, yeah. And when you're just like very young, and depending where you grow up from, and like the fact of the matter is, murder is wrong. But if you are part of this liberation and you feel like cops are an agent of the system, yeah. then it it is uh, so layered. Yeah. But anyways, even with the parole, he's going to be supervised for life. And the parole board concluded that he matured and expressed remorse. And they took in a few factors, such as his age, his limited disciplinary history and network of supporters, and said that the state has prepared him for his release. Albert Washington, the other person, died in prison in April 2000. And then Anthony Bottom was granted parole at 68 years old in 2020 and released, um, you know, in October of 2020. Um, I understand the families of victims being upset, but the language is kind of insane. You know, um, the president of the association, the Police Benevolence Association, Pat Lynch, said, cop killers should never be returned to society. And it's like, I don't don't know. I don't know. What about the cops that kill their wives? Can they be returned to society? Mm. It's just so fucking annoying. Did we even ever find out what happened to that cop's wife who was, like, boiled to death in the car that he locked her in? What? This was, like, a couple years ago. A cop's wife was found in the back of a police car and it was, like, a hot day. He put her in there and she boiled because you can't get out and it was hot as fuck. And I don't think anything ever happened. Miami police officer, yeah, 2020, dies after she gets trapped for hours in the back of his work vehicle. Cause of death had not been released. Really? Feels like we know what happened. But he, but they, he's acting like she got in the back of the car or something like that. He came home from work, went to bed. Yeah, and she didn't know where into she the was. Car. Sure. Yeah. yeah. 
It's un- it's unknown why she went inside her husband's vehicle without her cell phone. This is according to CNN. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't think there, I, it sounds like there's not even going to be an investigation into it from what I'm looking at. Nope. That was it. Nothing about it since October of three years ago. Wow. All right. So well. that's what I mean. It's just like, obviously a life is a life. This These cops had full families, people who loved them, like absolutely. But the language of all these people is such bullshit. It's like their lives like don't matter anymore. Ranking people in society. Yeah. Like ranking people as more important than other people is not. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me be like, yeah, release all of the cop killers. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just like the language actually does the opposite. Um, According to CBS News, in September 2020, it said that 16 cop killers in New York have gone free in three years you know, in this time. and the, But then in a joint statement from the re, uh, Release Aging People in Prisons campaign, very specific name, you know exactly <laughs> what they're doing. The Parole Preparation Project and the Brooklyn Defenders Officer and Legal Aid Society in support of the Parole Board's decision released this. Um, and I, re- I like what they said. The purpose of parole is to evaluate people for release based on who they are today, not to extend sentences into perpetuity. Mm. And I like that. Okay. This final case that I'm going to touch on um, is, again, about, like, parole. Um, I don't know why none of the crimes on the wiki were about solitary confinement, in all honesty. But here's another... This is very interesting. Do you know about this, about Norman Mailer and Jack? um, No. Okay. I think you're going to be... Enticed. It's kind of wild. So, Jack Henry Abbott is a best-selling author and convicted killer who was paroled in 1981 with the support of novelist Norman Mailer. So, six weeks later, after he was paroled, he killed a, a waiter in cold blood and then was sentenced to 15 years to life for manslaughter. And while in prison, he did take his own life with a bedsheet and a shoelace at his maximum security prison in 2002. His lawyer, Michael Kuzma, has doubts that he took his own life because he had been voicing fears for his safety in recent weeks, but a note was found, even if the contents had not been released. So we're not really, you know, sure. This case drew a lot of national headlines and spurred a debate about whether the parole system was too lenient and also brought a ton of criticism to Norman Mailer, who was obsessed with Abbott and just focused on his literary gifts and not the capacity for violence because he's a fucking idiot. Even though he went to Harvard, wrote novels, essays, nonfiction, journalism, biographies, won Pulitzer Prizes, National Book Awards, and of course was married six times. One of those wives in 1960, he stabbed in the abdomen after a party. So Norman Mailer, go fuck yourself. Like, this is classic when men are like, I don't know, he was like so nice and chill. And it's like, you could tell from a mile away, this is a psychopath. But anyways, but to be able to go to Harvard and still not under, like, it's just something about people who think they're intelligent or like book smart or literary or like the gifts are above everything else. Like you are blinded to true humanity, I think. Hmm. So Abbott was in prison to begin with for just like writing bad checks, but then he murdered uh, another inmate and that is what like extended his sentence and put him into solitary and stuff like that. So Abbott began sending Mailer letters from prison in the late 70s. And with the help of Mailer, like who wrote an intro, he published uh, all these letters in a book called In the Belly of the Beast. 
1981. And in the intro, Mailer wrote that the boldness of the juvenile delinquent grows into the audacity of the self-made intellectual. Which is wishful hope, honestly. He likes a bad boy. Norman Mailer likes a bad boy. Yeah, and so, like, you know, he was just hoping it's not crime and punishment, but crime, punishment, and redemption. And that talent, I guess, redeems you in some way. And we Mm. see that time and time again. I mean, people are still happily listening to R. Kelly. You know what I mean? Because whenever someone is bad, it's like, well innocent till proven guilty. And then when they're proven guilty, their stance doesn't change. Yeah. Like, R-, he, R. Kelly's in prison. Why are you still listening to him? But, okay. So, yeah, he just thought that the act of writing can transform a violent person into just a philosopher of violence. But, like, honey, it's not just a theory. You know what I mean? Like, if someone lives by these principles that they're writing, mm-hmm. it's not just an idea or a philosophy. And this person, um, you know, Abbott, has been, since the age of 12, spent all but nine and a half months in prison. And 15 of those years were in solitary confinement. Mailer wrote to the Utah Board of Corrections that Mr. Abbott has the making of a powerful and important American writer and promised him a job as a research assistant at $150 a week. And when he was uh, released, he was treated like a literary celebrity. You know, he was on Good Morning America, good reviews, fancy dinners, People Magazine interviews, Soho News. He was doing assignments for the New York Review of Books and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He signed with an agent. People loved the book and they compared his jail time to like political prisoners, which is... Not the same. (laughs) And then two weeks, um, because that's the whole thing. They're like comparing so much of him to like Russian authors and stuff like that. Like, Mm -hmm. and I don't know. People that were persecuted, but it's like this guy wrote bad checks. (laughs) It's like, like, Teresa Judice, I'm sorry you have to go to jail, but you guys did do mail fraud. Like you did steal money, (laughs) like and not pay taxes or whatever. Yeah, I mean, them being like, oh, they've been through a lot. It's like, no, 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 your parents are criminals. You still got to keep your house. Many people do not. And your kids, and you got to like stagger your sentence, like your time. Yeah. I just, obviously you can have a hard time within your family and struggle, but to try to get like empathy from others when you're a slumlord, go (laughs) fuck yourself. So two weeks later, after all these dinners and all this fun and all this attention, he stabbed Richard Adden, 22, an aspiring actor and playwright, to death outside of an East Village restaurant where he worked as a waiter. There was a month-long manhunt and he was found in Louisiana. Again, Louisiana. Why are people all fleeing to Louisiana, I wonder? January 1982, he was convicted of first-degree manslaughter. Wildly, Mailer did say he felt a very large responsibility. (laughs) He said, never thought Abbott was close to killing, and that's why I have to sit in judgment on myself. I just was not sensitive to that fact. Okay. Classic dude stuff. And, oh my God, so while the trial was happening for this, you know, murder, Abbott represented himself at one point and told Adden's widow, Richie Adden, that her husband's life was, in quote, not worth a dime. They just let this psycho represent himself at the civil trial. Oh my God. And yet, this is what I mean with this, like, upper crust people. It's like, oh, well, I think you're good. I see your humanity. So you must be. You know what I mean? Like, this dude is clearly fucked up, but so is Norman Mailer. Yeah. 
Um, and the, the even wilder is that Abbott knew the whole time that Mailer's view of him was wrong and he was not the person his literary mentor made him out to be. He wrote to Mailer in one of the letters in the 70s, my life is not a saga and I resent your using the term like that. I do not feel heroic. And that's that. I do think there is something to be said for like looking into this guy Abbott's like past. Like he's in jail from 12 years old. Like nine and a half months of his life have ever been spent in freedom. Like I do think that's a little bit what of the, the what the episode is talking about. It's it's fucked up that Norman Mailer was like, I'm gonna bestow you with my privilege and decide that you're the chosen one. But at the same time, like this guy seems like he's a product of the incarceration system and like being in jail for most of his fucking life. And then he just randomly murders waiters and has no value for their lives, you know, like. No, and this um, New York Times article talks about like, usually, you know, even with Herman, it's like you you leave jail and you're going to parole meetings. You're in a halfway house. Like you're being supervised. There's check-ins. This guy just went into hanging out with the glitterati of the literary Manhattan community. Yeah. Being celebrated. So I, I don't, I don't even understand how he didn't have parole meetings to go to, how he wasn't being monitored, that he just got to be on the news and celebrated and drink champagne. Like that also fucks with you. It's like this this admiration and people are obsessed with you. And yeah. I'm sure that's like such a hard departure from what he normally knew. The good news is in 1990, a Manhattan jury did award 7.57 million in damages to Adam's widow, Ricci. So... Oh, because they gave him parole and then he killed. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, all the money from this book goes to him, to her, to like make this. Oh, yeah. Because he can't profit off of his crimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Because I've also heard of the belly of the beast. Like, I've heard that before. I think I've heard of that, too. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think this is like a weird collection of cases. That all kind of fit like little pieces into what we watched, but definitely not as clear cut as a lot of our other episodes. Yeah. And it did interesting. <laughs> yes. And it didn't like focus on any specific like stories of solitary confinement, but we're going to get into that a little bit in what would Sister Peg do? So let's just jump into our post mortem since we don't have a guest. All right, post-mortem time. What did we look... I mean, I don't know. I don't really agree with solitary confinement. I don't know what the answer is, like what we're supposed to do with people that are like super violent and can't be around the rest of the population of the jail. But I do just feel like it's making things worse. Can't they be in cells that are like in a circle so they can at least like see each other sometimes or pass notes? Yeah, like have a conversation. Yeah, but then we you can't have him having ideas. You know, we did watch Con Air. I finally showed you Con Air. Um, sure, sure. <laughs> you, we can't have them hatching up too many plans. You're right. It's um, it's tough. It's like, you know it's wrong, but you don't have the answer. Yeah. Because for death penalty, being against it, there is an answer. But I think that's solitary confinement. <laughs> so, like, I don't know. Well, no, I don't know. The people on death row, I don't necessarily think are are... So, are in solitary, are they? Maybe like, I think if they could just do Zooms or something, but they don't <laughs> want them to have any technology. Like, they're trying to punish them, but yeah, like... Yeah, they're being punished, but like no outside, no air, not a window. Like, it's too much. I think it's too much. I think it's too much punishment. I just feel if you're there forever alone, 
You should get some books. Like, you should get stuff. They just don't trust them. I don't know. It is fucked. You're right. We don't have the answers. If you have the answer and think this is super simple, let us know. Yeah. Maybe you're one of the people online that have all the answers. I do appreciate the show having Christopher Maloney do like, you know, solitary confinement cosplay and be in there for three days and go absolutely crazy to a pet cockroach. So when they brought in the cockroach, do you think he was like, yeah, I'm ready? Or was he like, oh, God damn it. Or like, <laughs> I've been waiting for this all my... Oh, wait, hold on. We have a friend. I watched him do stand up last night and he had a really funny joke. I, I don't want to ruin the joke. But I, I, I don't want to not give credit. You know what I mean? But it's Moshe yeah. Kasher. And he was saying how he has like violent, violent rat traps. And he heard a rat get stuck in one of the traps, but it wasn't dead. And so he was just like, fuck, you know, I have to put it out of its misery. Like what I've learned from life is like, you don't let an animal suffer. But then his daughter was like, well, can I come? And so he in his head was like, I guess this is a teachable moment. Well, oh, I, I'll no. teach her to like, you know, <laughs> you got to put pet animals out of their misery. You can't let them be in pain. So they went downstairs, but like he said that like, so he took a golf club and hit it on the head, but instead of dying, it became stronger. And then he just had to keep hitting it. And it went into like 10, 15 hits. It, it started pissing itself. The rat is pissing itself. It's like it's screaming. And then he's, and then it hits him that his daughter's in the room and she's five. And so he's like turning around to be like, oh, I'm sorry, I fucked up. Like go upstairs. But she was there with like bloodlust. She was like, yeah, get him. Fucking kill it. Kill it. Like she was just super aggressive like she was in a coliseum in Rome and just like screaming for this rat's death and so he thought he traumatized her but really he found out she could be a sociopath like we don't know (laughs) I just saw them last week the whole fam at a pizza place and she's the sweetest little thing and that's really wild And his joke is just so fun. I honestly, last night, I went up first on this show. I had a great time. And then I stayed and watched three comics. I was loving it. I was like having the time of my life. Everyone was so funny. I really, (laughs) one person I was kind of annoyed that I found him funny, to be honest. Um, But I was, I was into it. Wow. It was a Halloween miracle. Yeah. And then there was another comic (laughs) who had a joke about like, why is pepper spray only for women? He's like, I need to protect myself too. And then he goes into like probably a eight minute joke about pepper spray that he's pepper sprayed six people, how to pepper spray, like how to get away. And then he's like, when you pepper spray, you got to run. Cause the first time I got cocky and was like, yeah, take that pepper spray, bitch. And then he goes, but it blows back. It blows back. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That rat story is really terrifying. I know. She was just like, get her daddy, get it. You know, Oh, and uh, the the rat death. Like, I hate rats, but I don't like hearing about how this rat was being growing stronger and pissing itself. No, they should have left the house and let it die slowly on its own. Like, I don't know the answer. Or, like, get better poison. Like, obviously, it's not a good trap. Like, get poison. Yeah. It, I don't yeah. think it needs a metal. You don't need to be snapping its like backbone. But I that's think, what they say is the most humane. The snap traps are the most humane because it just, it, at least for mice, it just kills them the quickest. This was a super rat, it sounds like. 
This rat was on yeah. roids. No, the pissing itself is the level where it's like, uh, fuck. And the five-year-old, I can't, oh my God. Okay, he we got it. We got to move forever. on. <laughs> we got um, this week, you know, our segment, What Would Sister Peg Do?, where we direct you guys towards like a resource, an organization, an article, something that gives you more information about the episode you saw today. And um, this episode came out before the death of Khalif Browder, which I consider to be one of the most tragic, unjust tragedies of modern times. He was a black teen from the Bronx who spent three years in jail just never being convicted of a crime for stealing a backpack. It was not him. And uh, it, it's just a, a, a horrible case of how he was kept in solitary and um, later... In solitary? Because of things that happened in jail, like what happens in this episode. Like, he went in for a crime that wasn't that bad, but then it's like, you defend yourself in jail, you fight, and then you get put into solitary. So um, this this all happened in, when I was living in New York. It's horrible. And um, there's a great docu-series called Time, the Khalif Browder story. It is on Netflix and it um, covers Khalif's entire case and, um, you know, his tragic death and his uh, subsequent mental health issues after being imprisoned and uh, the legacy after his death. So if you're interested um, in learning a little bit more about solitary confinement and Khalif's Browder story, then please check that out. And that will be posted in our stories the day that this episode comes out and saved forever in our What Would Sister Peg Do highlight. Wow. That is so fucking sad. Yeah. Um, and next week, please join us. We'll be doing Manhattan Vigil, season 14, episode five. We're obsessed with all of you. Um, we love meeting all of you. Thanks for all our cute Taylor Swift-style friendship rates. I can't believe she's like... I, it's just be beaded bracelets, but now they're Taylor Swift bracelets. You know I what know. I mean? And that's Friendship the power. bracelets have been around forever, and now it's like they're Taylor Swift, they're Eros bracelets. Yeah. Because now when I just see someone with a bracelet, I'm like, oh, did you go to Taylor Swift? And it's like, no, they went to That's Messed Up Live. That's what they fucking did. <laughs> I'm obsessed with, um, yeah, we're just um, so lucky you guys listen. Um, God, this um, Khalif Browder thing's really gonna uh, ruin my day, I think. I know. No, I'm I'm glad you brought it up. I have to watch this. That's so I remember hearing about the backpack and spending three years. I didn't realize that he yeah. like that he died. Yeah. Um, but we will see you guys next week for more lightness and darkness as usual on our podcast. <laughs> Bye guys. Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmessedappod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmessedappod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien, and our associate producer, Christina Chamberlain. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker, Patrick Kotner. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.